From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. Thanks for downloading this week's episode and spending some time with us digging into the latest news. We're bringing you the biggest stories in the industry from the past week, including Super.com's $85 million raise for a super app for savings. We're lucky to be joined by the CEO himself, who can talk us through precisely what it is they're looking to do with the money, the impact that they've had to date, and really kind of that problem space that they're trying to solve for US customers. Could First Republic be the next SVB as the US scrambles to save it? A really rapidly emerging and ever-changing kind of story, but we're looking to understand why is it that First Republic have got into this situation in the first place? What do we think the likely next steps are? And what are the wider repercussions for the the US financial system as a whole? And Klarna roll out a suite of AI-enabled personalization tools. Would you trust AI to pick your next outfit? I certainly wouldn't. We'll get into all this and much more on today's jam-packed news show. But first, a few brief messages. Back in a minute. Hello, lovely listeners. We just wanted to let you know that Global Processing Services, otherwise known as GPS, the payments platform trusted by the leading issuers to process billions of transactions a year, have changed their name to Thread. Why Thread? Well, Thread because their tailored payment processing solutions are the thread that connects payments innovators of the future. Thread because they are a true partner becoming part of the fabric of your business as it grows. And Thread because, well, it just feels right. Find out more at thread.com. That's T-H-R-E-D-D.com. Thread. Weaving payments magic. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome to episode 733 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some brilliant guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, making a Fintech Insider debut, we're delighted to have Hussein Fazl, CEO at Super.com. Welcome to the show, Hussein. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell our newer listeners about you and Super.com, please, before we get into your very exciting news shortly? Thank you for having me. Uh, Super.com is a saving super app built for the everyday American. Uh, We've made a ton of progress in the past couple of years. And obviously, you just saw the news on our $85 million Series C in funding. So I'm glad to be here. And I'd love to tell you more about how the company evolved and and what we're building right now. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to, to jumping into that for sure. Up next, we have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Sophie Guibault, co-founder and chief commercial officer and growth officer at Fiat Republic and co-author of the embedded finance book, When Payments Become an Experience. Welcome back to the show, Sophie. Always a pleasure to have you. Can you remind our listeners of you and your role at Fiat Republic, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'm uh, glad to be back. Um, So I am one of the co-founders and chief commercial officer of Fiat Republic. And what we do is we are a crypto-friendly banking aggregator that provides the ability for crypto platforms to do Fiat on-ramp and off-ramp in uh, different currencies. 
Awesome. I suspect you've been very busy recently, tons and tons going on in your space. So looking forward to getting your perspective on the news. And finally, we have another very welcome return to Fintech Insider for Tui Allen, VP of Product at Ampler. Thanks for joining us again, Tui. Can you give our listeners a rundown of yourself and Ampler, please? Yeah, great. Uh, Thanks for having me back. I'm a huge fan, as you guys know, and it's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, So yeah, so I run our um, product and design organization at Ampla. And for those who are not familiar with Ampla, Ampla is the premier financial platform for consumer brands and really the broader uh, CPG supply chain. We provide growth capital, banking, AP, AR services to omni-channel businesses to help them better manage and grow their business. Um, you can really kind of think of us like the operators platform for brands and the CPG industry. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you very much for the quick intro. And yeah, looking forward to hearing your take on the news as well. So with that, let's get into the news as always. Lots for us to, to dig into. So our first story comes from TechCrunch, and that is that Super.com has raised $85 million for a savings super app. Super.com, an all-in-one savings platform, has raised $85 million in debt and equity to help it build out a savings-focused super app. The Series C includes $60 million in equity investment led by Inovia Capital and $25 million in a credit facility. Formerly Snap Commerce, Super launched its cashback card Supercash last October so that card users could build credit. To date, it has amassed 5 million customers worldwide who have collectively saved over $150 million. Following this hypergrowth, they are on track for over $100 million in net revenue in 2023. Hussein, probably a bit rude to not come to you first on this one. Firstly, like, congratulations on the raise. Um, I mean, it, it sounds like a, a really amazing roller coaster time you've been through recently. You've had a meteoric rise over the last year. You know, what can you tell us about you know, what that growth journey has been like and what this money will help you to do next? Thank you. We'll, really appreciate it. I think you did a good job with the TechCrunch article covering most of it, uh, but I'll give you a little bit of background and a little bit of history on the company. Uh, when we started the company about six or seven years ago, we were actually just focused on one specific vertical, and it was around helping people save money on hotels. Uh, so what we do is you could come in and you could you know get a great hotel deal. We we have ways to get you 10, 20, 30% off hotels. Um, and that business on its own grew extremely fast. But what we realized when talking to our customers is that they didn't just want to save, they needed to save. And they needed to save not just on hotels, but across everything they bought. And then more concerning, we saw that 60 to 70% of these customers were paying with a debit card, not a credit card, because they didn't have access to credit. So we kind of took a step back, myself and my co-founder, about two or three years ago. And we said, how can we really help these customers across the board? Uh, We decided to sort of evolve the company to be a saving super app. So where we are now is we still have great deals on hotels called Super Travel. We have great deals on products uh, called Super Shop, which is kind of like a daily deals uh, type of offering. And then we launched the Super Cash Card, which lets you earn rich cash back and build your credit score with your everyday spend. So what we want and what we want to get to is that anytime a customer in this demographic, which is typically an underserved demographic, lower income, lower FICO score, has any type of spend decision, they come to us because we're going to be able to help them save across everything they buy. No, it's a, it's, as you say, it's a really interesting kind of growth from that kind of first area of focus to, to really expand out. And I suppose it may be when people might have just picked up that article and seen savings app, they might have just thought, okay, it's just a savings account. But really your vision is, is as you say, so much broader than that. It's about really kind of helping people to have that most effective and efficient use of their spend, especially when they're constrained. Um, you know, how far do those super app ambitions 
stretch. And I suppose, yeah, why, why, do, you, why do you think that kind of saving super app is, is the right label for it? Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty big bet, right? So what you'll see is what most companies do is they go in one path and then they try and just do a whole bunch of very adjacent paths. Or what they'll do is they'll do geographical expansion, right? So if you're in hotels, it's obvious for you to go and do flights and tickets and tourism activities and car rentals, right? Or if you're in travel, you may say, okay, I've done really well in the US. Now I'm going to expand to Canada, to the UK, to Australia. I'm going to go expand to other countries. What we did is we did something that you'll typically see more in uh, Eastern companies or Asian companies where you focus on the customer and you talk to the customer and you say like, what else can we do to help you in your life? Um, and again, the common theme there was um, this fact that, you know, there's a large part of the U.S. population, you know, over 100 million who are underserved by the current financial systems, who don't have the ability to save, who don't have the ability to earn rewards like most of us do or like the rest of us do, uh, don't have the ability to build their credit score. Uh, so that's sort of why we went down this path and, and we had this bigger ambition. Now, a super app is tricky, right? It comes with its challenges because a lot of times a customer doesn't really understand the clear purpose, right? Because like when you want to watch, uh, you open Netflix. When you want to listen, you open Spotify, right? Uh, and it's very clear. Uh, when you come to us, you could be coming to us to book a hotel. You could be coming to us to check your transactions on your super cash card to build your credit score. You could be coming to us to save money on gas and groceries. So there's quite a bit of work and education uh, in doing this, but but we do have big ambitions. And luckily with the new funding, uh, we're going to be investing a lot in you know growing the super cash card and just growing more ways for our customers to save every time they open the super.com app. Okay. No, no, that's, that's really good to understand. Tui, what was what was your take on this news? Have you been following Super's progress? What's what's your take? Yeah, I have. Um, I know um, several of the folks at Inovia and just kind of in general love, um, you know, I worked at Shopify before. And so I love these companies that that are Canadian and American. And um, I think uh, Super falls into that category. So um, congratulations. Super exciting. Um, I actually love, again, being a product person to play around with products too. And so I actually have um, the app on my phone Uh and I, you know, (laughs) Yeah, I do. Um, here it is. I know we won't be able to see this on the actual podcast, but there it is. Oh, awesome. Um, and, you know, I think Sophie and I probably agree and align a lot on this. Wherever you can, in context of some uh, an action or a job to be completed and in your world with the consumer, and you can sort of help them kind of think through all of the other things that are important in their world, I think those are so powerful, those solutions. So I'm a huge embedded finance believer. I'm a believer in kind of um, thinking about like, you know, embedding solutions and problems in the flow of the job to be done and in context of where the consumer or their user really is. And so I think your team has done a good job of like recognizing that. And to your point, um, I think North America has a lot to learn from Asia where Asia has been doing this for a long time um, and really bringing together your average, you know, consumer is their, their current job to be done is to book travel or their current job to be done is to, you know, use their, build their credit. So why not in that same context, offer them the full suite of things that are important to them. So, um, so yeah, I think um, it's great. It's a great movement for you all. Yeah. I appreciate that. Just, just, I just want to go into that point a little bit deeper. So a lot of, times when people are thinking about, oh, I want to build a super app, they make a mistake. And and the mistake is that, you know, I come here, I book my hotel, and now all of a sudden I see this laundry list of 
things like, oh, you can save on gas, you can save on groceries, you can save on like no one's gonna book a hotel and then with the very next click go buy a pair of jeans, right? That that <laughs> that logical leap just doesn't really work. So when we look at and think about cross-selling people within the super app and making them understand that it's an overall saving super app, we have to do it in a very thoughtful way. So I'll give you a few examples. One of the ways we do that is you're coming in, you're booking a hotel room, you're typing in your debit card, and we literally see you typing in your debit card, and we're like, what are you doing? You're about to not earn rewards, you're about to not build your credit score, why don't you switch over to Supercash, and we'll give you an extra 10% off your hotel booking right now. And all of a sudden, that changes the mindset for the customer, because they're like, yeah, I want 10% off my hotel booking right now. They go and they do this, and now they have the Supercash card, and we're like, hey, by the way, every time you use this, you can earn cash back, right? So very much like link the experiences together and bringing the adjacent product or the related product at the right time versus being like, here's like a laundry list of things that you can do. Sophie, have you had a chance to stalk the super app as well? Or like, I mean, what's, how, how, how do you think about the, the types of experiences that Hussein is, is describing? So I, I haven't had the uh, chance to uh, to stock the app. I have chance to stock the the website. To be honest, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm based in France, so like <laughs> it's uh, it's not quite offered to me. But I think like looking at the proposition, it's definitely topical based on current market conditions, right? Like, and it's normally already super relevant, of course, to make more savings and like to build credit score, etc. But I think in the situation we are currently in, this value proposition makes even more sense. So that's the, the first point I would say. And to you send point on um on providing contextual offers according to what customers need, that's everything about embedded finance and like it's what we discussed a million times with Tree uh, and around the Shopify experience back in the days it's you need to take the data to make something useful with the data otherwise embedded finance don't have any point but it's because there is all this data and you can interpret it and you can provide this great um, experience personalized to the user according to their needs exactly when they need it, um, that basically makes embedded finance so powerful. Yeah, and just, just one more anecdote there, you know, as we have more customers who are using Supercash or they're connecting their bank account and they're connecting their, their details, we really start to see where they're spending money and where they need to save. So the next thing we did uh, as soon as we launched Supercash was looked at the data and we found a way to offer our customers 30 cents a gallon off gas. So we partnered with uh, Shell and with Fuel Rewards because we saw that that was the next biggest, most transacted item, right? So, you know, they're, they're coming in and they're one of their biggest, highest expense items was like day-to-day was gas and groceries. So those are the two things that we're going to be tackling next. And, and in those cases, it's not something we're necessarily going to build out from end to end, but it's you know looking for the right partnerships and looking for the right sort of white-labeled partnership solutions so we can bring those savings to our customers. I think one of the other things, you know, alongside all the kind of brilliant things you're building out on the product side, I think one of the other things which has obviously drawn attention to to your progress, saying has been kind of some of the people that have been backing what you're doing. Obviously, you've got a, a pretty cool list of angel investors, um, including obviously again something. Sorry, listeners, you, you can't see for yourselves, but he's got some interesting merch right behind him. So, you know, <laughs> say maybe you could explain to us how how important have those investors been? Have they helped you to to really drive the growth of the company? Um, what, what role have they played? Yeah, so th- we've had 
such great investors along the way. Um, first two, you mentioned Inovia. They're, they've just been fantastic investors. So they're one of our earliest investors in the A round, and they've been supportive in every round and, and fantastic in every single way. Uh, we talked about Shopify very quickly, and I know we'll be talking about Shopify more. Uh, we got Harley, who's a fellow Canadian, to come in and invest as well uh, in this round. He's been fantastic. Uh, and then, yes, behind me, I have a Steph Curry jersey, who um, is, as most of you know, uh, probably the best player in the NBA, I think, uh, at least call him a top three right now. Uh, had a big win last night uh, going in 3-2 into the series. Uh, again, amazing investor, very supportive, and just a very down-to-earth person. Uh, and you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how did you do this? How did you get Steph Curry as an investor? Uh, and it was actually a couple of rounds ago when Telstra Ventures invested. Uh, they looped in his firm, SC30, and his manager, Bryant, ran a process just like any other investor would. So went through the due diligence, you know, made a presentation, went through kind of everything um, that a normal investor would go through. Uh, but when they came in, the big difference is Steph has been um, willing to do a lot for the company. So he, you know, he came to our office and he would hang out with us. We've been on stage together at TechCrunch Disrupt. Uh, we've done a weekend together in Napa. We've done, he's an interview on Bloomberg. He's just done all the stuff and he's come in on the same terms as every other investor, uh, whereas a lot of times you see celebrities who come in to a firm and they either don't do anything or they want all these special warrants or these special rights or these special terms um, or even extra payment to be able to do anything for the company. So really blessed to have Steph uh, on the cap table and it, it's been a great partnership. For sure. Well, amazing kind of news on the raise. Congratulations again. Um, and we'll keep our eyes peeled to kind of see what you do next. But you know, phenomenal growth today and I'm glad that you guys have got some more run runway to continue building out what sounds like some really amazing experiences for your, for your customers. So congrats. Our next story comes from Reuters and it's a slightly more uh, somber story. And that is, could First Republic be the next SVB? U.S. Bank First Republic is having a pretty tumultuous time as it loses value and deposits and looks for a buyer or bailout plan to save it from collapse. It reported a more than $100 billion plunge in deposits in the quarter. Shares on Tuesday slid to a record low, closing down nearly 50.50. First Republic said on Monday it was pursuing strategic options to quickly strengthen the bank without stating what those options are. Speculation is rife that the options include support from the US government, an asset sale of up to $100 billion, and selling equity in exchange for loans. It has already had a $30 billion rescue deal last month from JPM, Citigroup, and other major US banks to prop it up after the SVB fallout left its share price at 70% of its original value. Um, obviously, a, a very sort of rapidly changing and dynamic story. Um, so, uh, and a slight, slight change in tone from, from what we were talking about first up. But um, Tui, maybe I'll come to you first on this. Obviously, you're US-based or sort of North American-based. Um, what is the general feeling about these these precarious times that we're in and the rescue deals that have been levied so far? Yeah, it's been a um, fascinating time to be close to the banking sector in the US uh, over the past several weeks, months. Um, I'd say that... Um, sort of like a roller coaster of emotions <laughs> that have been happening. Um, you know, I think lots of um, important, you know, government action to step in and and support some of the first, you know, um, 
bank failures that were great and acted on quickly. Uh, I think in general, the sentiment is that there's still volatility and there's still some instability, but I do feel that the U.S. financial system is very strong. And I think we're working through a bit of a, what is the right approach to handle the current situation with First Republic? And obviously lots of discussions happening with um, big banks and government, et cetera, on determining what is that right next step to make sure that it's done in the right way. Uh, I think obviously there's there's a lot of concern around precedent. There's concerns around if you're a big bank, um, <clears throat> if they're asked to come in and support this, but then ultimately there's some sort of a, a takeover where this then gets bought by one of the competitors. Like there's just, it's, 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 um, it's a very interesting time. I don't think any one of us has like a crystal ball to say how things will play out, but I do feel that the, um, the U.S. financial system is very strong and, um, you know, being kind of, you know, uh, I don't think we're done. I think there's some level of like corrections and some level of um, healthy tightening up that that maybe that's the glass half full view of this situation that are actually maybe good in the long term. Um, but it's definitely been a very fascinating and interesting time right now. I know we want to probably go and talk through some specifics as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um I suppose, yeah, in terms of that sort of glass half full perspective, you know, I've, I've certainly also seen um, some some takes which are just sort of talking about this as like almost like a inevitable consequence of just the really, really high levels of deposit holding that we saw in the immediate aftermath of, of the pandemic. So, um, yeah, definitely some perspective on that. I mean, I suppose just to get one other thought from you too, I suppose, do you think that the general public in the States are worried about this? Or is this something that really is more of a hang up for people like like ourselves that are just living and breathing this industry every single day? Well, no doubt we're definitely much closer to it and and kind of watching every, you know, minute play out. Uh, but I would say that the broader sentiment is um, kind of in the kind of the general sort of population is more just where are we from an economy perspective and what will this do to continued concerns around interest rate changes, inflation? So I'd say that the general sort of sentiment on Main Street is more around the economy holistically. But obviously, we all know that some of what's happening in the world of banking and the financial system is incredibly tied to the future of the economy. And so I'd say a couple levels removed, we're much closer to it, but I would say that um, there is a lot of concern and uncertainty is probably more than concern, just uncertainty around um, how the next several quarters will play out in the US. For sure. Um, Hussain, what's your take on this story? Where do you think we're going to go next? Yeah, I just, I just had a quick comment from a business owner's perspective, from a tech business owner's perspective. Um, we got caught up a bit in the SVB crisis, so we had a fair amount of capital uh, with SVB. That was an extremely stressful weekend. Um, and since that happened, we've shifted our entire treasury strategy. Uh, we've sort of split the cash that we have, mostly amongst a lot of the bigger banks. Um, so in my mind, SVB or First Republic or any of these smaller banks, they may be used as an operating account because they're easy to work with and it's easier to move money in and out. And, you know, they, there's great relationships there, but there's no world in which we would use SVB or First Republic or any smaller bank 
as a storage of capital. Like we're not going to keep money over there in a savings account. We're not going to invest money through any of those banks. So unfortunately for these banks, they may still have a business and I don't think the government's going to let them go under, but they're never going to be able to hold, in my opinion, the size of deposits that they used to have. And when they can't keep the size of deposits that they used to have, that also means they can do less lending. That means less revenue. So these are just smaller banks are just going to become smaller, in my opinion, because, you know, business owners like me are not going to be keeping money with them and keeping deposits with them. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a really, really interesting point. Um, Stothi, what, what's your take? Yeah, I would love to jump on this one, representing the crypto community. <laughs> because like, the main problem of the crypto community is the lack of access to those tier one banks. So I totally like appreciate um, uh, you send views and like t- um, strategy towards banking. And it totally makes sense uh, to, to go towards tier one banks, store capital there, use the rest as operating account. But we are still in the stage of this nascent industry where actually tier one banks refuse to work with crypto platforms. And actually crypto platforms only can rely on those uh, tier two, tier three banks that actually see crypto as an opportunity um, to to grow because uh, because of this lack um, of access. So I think like there is this um, for sure this strategy for startups, smaller startups, bigger startups of like going to the GP Morgans. I think we all have seen uh, on online like uh, where the accounts of SVB went and there was like uh, GP Morgan and Mercury, etc. But I think there is still this problem to be addressed by um, by governments in general. So of course, like in the US, it's a bit more complicated right now with like the latest move of the SEC towards crypto. But even globally like just taking about uh, talking about Europe we are moving with uh, mica um, uh, uh, crypto platforms being regulated there will be a need for for governments to actually improve the accessibility towards better banking for crypto platforms and so I just want to take this example for other segments as well that could be a bit underbanked um, as I can be I can imagine remittance as well in general um, and that needs to be addressed, basically. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's um, that's a really important point to raise as well. I suppose my main observation, I think, from you again, was not an expert in uh, First Republic kind of before this started to happen to them. I think you know, there's such a wide swathe of banks in the US, it's very difficult to, to stay on top of, of all of them. But it, you know, it does seem like you know, there is a similarity in that they did have this skew in their customer base towards that particular segment. I think in this case, less you know, of the sort of VC startup audience, but um, you know that wealthier client base, a big kind of focus on yeah, mortgage, mortgage lending, um, that was obviously a very different model when there were low interest rates versus high interest rates. I think there were rumors that they had given like Mark Zuckerberg some ridiculously low rate mortgage on, on his mansion in in California. So they had quite a significant skew towards one particular customer base. Obviously, that was a criticism that was levied at SVB as well. Um, you know, Tui, what what's your take? Do you think that these smaller banks are going to have to really diversify their customer bases and sort of stop having these niche specialisms that we maybe have seen up to now? Uh, yeah, I think, and Hussein touched on this as well. I think the business model is going to have to change pretty significantly. I'd say there's also an element of like, well, you know, you, we should all be thinking about just basics of diversification is important no matter what you're doing, right? Um, in business and finance and banking. And so to your point, I think um, 
both SVV and um, First Republic weren't being thoughtful from just first principles of diversification and the importance of that. Um, And then I think, though, going back to some of what Hussein was bringing up, I think that the business model for some of these banks is going to need to change. And it will be interesting. And there's some things I think the government is doing, too, because I think it is, let me tell you, like, it is healthy in the United States to have the diversity of the banking structure that we have. You could argue that there's some (laughs) that brings some challenges. And definitely working in fintech, it brings challenges because trying to like keep your hands on the pulse of like what's happening in fintech regulation from state to state and across the 4,000 plus banks is is challenging. But at the same time, we have a very healthy, um, competitive uh, and cooperative sort of environment within banking in um, the U.S. that includes community banks, regional banks, and the big banks. I don't think we want a world where the U.S. looks like many other countries where you have a handful of big banks and that's it. The level of innovation and, um, you know, sort of the health of the whole economy is based on having that level of kind of, you know, um, healthy coopetition. Um, But I do think the business models are going to need to change. And I do think that there's a level of regulation that's going to need to kind of maybe take several leaps forward and let's hope it can happen quick enough because the world has changed a lot. The pace of money movement uh, is different than it was five, 10 years ago. And that creates new risk. Um, And things like the FDIC insurance at 250,000, well, that maybe made sense, you know, 10 years ago, but that probably doesn't make sense anymore. And so there's just a lot of, I think, both regulation opportunities, business model changes that need to happen. Uh, and I don't I don't think we're done with some of the kind of corrections that are happening right now, but I do really believe in the fact that having a diverse banking um, infrastructure in the United States is healthy for the economy. Absolutely. Yeah, we um, we recently recorded a, an insight show specifically focused on that precise topic and, and heard kind of firsthand from some of those banks, the kind of the role that they play in the wider economy. So definitely agree that we don't want to see kind of that whole segment disappear. But I think as we've highlighted in this story, you know, lots of key things for them to consider. Um, and also, yeah, keeping my fingers crossed that we see some of the regulatory changes that you, you set out to. But I think anytime you hear the word leap and regulation in the same sentence, you, you kind of you know, cross all of your fingers and all of your toes because it does feel like a stretch versus what we've seen in the past. But um, I'm going to have to uh, pause us on this story for now. I feel like we could talk about it for a long time and it is a you know, rapidly changing situation. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on this one as it develops. Yeah, no dull moment. No dull moment in the world of banking these days. That's for sure. Like who thought banking, like, oh, banking, that's so boring. Not not today. <laughs> yeah. Never boring. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. 
Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insights show. Benjamin is joined by some great guests from Branch, iWalker and Trade to examine is the future of SME banking specialisation. The World Economic Forum estimates that 90% of businesses globally can be categorised as SMEs. That's a lot of businesses that are largely covered with the same financial services offerings. So maybe it's time to specialise. Go check that out wherever you get this podcast and let us know what you think. And speaking of banking services for SMEs, let's get into our next story. This one comes from AltFi, and that is that Shopify launches e-commerce payments tool with help from Israeli fintech Melio. Shopify announced that they have teamed up with Melio, a B2B payment company, to give merchants the ability to pay their customers and vendors within the platform. Shopify Bill Pay will assist with managing business bills by enabling merchants to pay and manage bills from vendors and contractors through the same Shopify admin they use to run their business. Merchants can specify both the method they use to pay bills and the way the vendor receives the payment, either via credit, bank or wire transfer. As Melio supports payments to 100 countries, Shopify merchants can use a new embedded finance offering to pay invoices both in the United States and abroad, the release said. For Israel-based Melio, this is the first time they've embedded their software with a commerce platform. Sophie, it's got the word embedded in it. I know that's your bag. So I'm going to come to you first on this book, uh, this one as you, you literally wrote the book <laughs> on embedded finance. So, you know, what's your initial take on this from an embedded finance perspective? Is this a sensible product launch? I think it makes, uh, yeah, indeed a, a lot of sense because what you want with embedded finance is to have everything at the same place that makes sense, right? So you don't want, like, uh, as Usain was saying, a whole bag of stuff and you just deal with it. But uh, paying and getting paid is like the 101 of any kind of e-commerce person. So like having, uh, not having the need to go and open an account somewhere else and manage finances and potentially make bank transfers in between their Shopify uh, banking accounts to their external account uh, at Melio, like gathering the money, etc., is is just like um, a, a no-brainer. It, it just reflects exactly what e-commerce people are doing on a day-to-day basis and and this is exactly what uh, tech people and fintech people aim to do with embedded finance, bringing convenience to people. Absolutely. And I suppose in practical terms, like how much difference do you think this will make to end users? Is this like just a small tweak or is this like a fundamental game changer, do you think? Collecting payment and paying suppliers when it comes to e-commerce is like the the, the beginning of everything. So, f- like according to to me, but I think Tui will have a deeper insight into it. It it ju- just looks like um, a, a massive uh, feature for all uh, Shopify uh, commerce um, owners. Yeah, Tui. Obviously, you, know, you used to work at Shopify, so I'd love to get your take on this. Like, what was your your reaction to this? Yeah, so um, very aligned with Sophie. Um, definitely, uh, I think this is r- really exciting for Shopify and for for the merchants that Shopify serves. Um, obviously, I'm uh, a big fan, um, having spent quite a bit of time at Shopify, especially in this area. So I'm really proud and excited to see what the team was it was able to launch. Uh, and yeah, I think the reality of like helping these underserved small businesses with things that maybe larger or mid-sized businesses are able to, you know, pay subscription fees or services through their ERP systems or other, um, you know, tools that are out there. 
uh, like build.com or others, I think the reality of like having this all within your platform where you're running your business is so powerful. And to Sophie's point, it's all about money in and money out and reducing the friction of those two sides. And, um, you know, Shopify is very, very intentional about um, having a really high quality bar in terms of how it embeds uh, financial solutions and how it embeds really all of the partner products or products that it builds even organically, just a very high quality bar. Uh, and I'm actually a, a user of Shopify too. Um, my my mom has a clothing business. And so of course I've been playing around with being a product geek. Not only do I have the super um, app on my phone, but I also um, continued to, as soon as they had launched it, I went in and sort of started to play with the product functionality. And it's it's great. It's super easy. It's embedded. It's, it's right in the workflow. It just makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know one of the things when I was at Shopify, and I know this is true for the for the company and its methodology, is just to really make it easy to do business. And this is a great step in that in that direction. And what was your take on on kind of their selection of, of Melia as that partner? Are they an obvious choice for for Shopify? You know, what what do you think of their offering? Yeah, uh, Emilio's tool is great, and it's exciting for Shopify to be able to um, be one of the first who's kind of taken it to the next step, which is, like I think for Sophie and I, who are really big fans of this embedded finance play, prior to Shopify, Emilio was a separate tool, and so you could go and use this separate tool, but it's a really powerful tool, but mm, going separately somewhere else, it's sort of like walking out your door to then go pay your bill, bringing it into your office, which I'll call the Shopify platform, the office, and actually having it right there is so powerful. And so it's a real win-win, I think, for Milio and for Shopify. And, you know, I think Milio is a, is a great company. Um, I think it's a great choice they made. Um, you know, I'm sure knowing Shopify, a tremendous amount of due diligence went into this. Um, and, you know, I think uh, Milio has great relationships already with some other big players, but I think this is taking it a step further, which is really exciting for both Shopify and Milio because Shopify is going to be a massive channel for them. Yeah, it feels like it'll be a really uh, like make or break thing for them. Like it'll either kind of just set them off like on this exponential path of growth because they've proved like if you can do it with Shopify, like who can't you do it with? Um, so yeah, fingers crossed it, it works out in that way. Um, Hussein, you know, I, I'm not sure I've ever heard Shopify self-describe as a super app, but I mean, would you, do you think they're a super app? They've kind of got these, these they're creating this ecosystem. Like what, what do you see as the differences, if any? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd go in and call them a super app. One thing I do know is that they're always on a mission to help small businesses and to help merchants and to do anything and everything they can to build the absolute best product and the best way for merchants to, you know, create a store, sell things and sort of grow their businesses. So this is an obvious step in that direction. Um, at the break, we talked a bit about the difference between being a small business and being a bigger business. For a small business, cash flow is even more important. It's about most important. Uh, a lot of times <clears throat> as a small business, you're in a position where you're like, hey, I can't buy this until I get money from here, right? So even just to be able to bring it together and amplify your cash flow and figure out all the money coming in and going out, uh, you have an, you have the ability to optimize and, and really grow your business. And again, taking a step back, that's what Shopify wants to do. They want to help merchants grow their business uh, and cash flow is a key part of it. Sophie, like how much of a difference do you think having these smooth kind of back-end partnerships makes to the kind of the consumer experience at the front end? Is it kind of, are they, are they connected? Are they separate? How, how much of a difference does it make? 
So on the shopper side, I uh, like I believe um, part of the partnership is said like it's going to simplify collections, right? So uh, we can, I guess, expect some processes where it's just easier to to pay not by card, but maybe by uh, by bank transfer, maybe have different facilities of payments, that type of thing. So that's what I would expect. Um, but the big change I would expect is really for the shop owners of logging in onto their Shopify interface and seeing all their bills managed in one little um, uh, place and just being able to see what's going on. And when you are an e-commerce shop, the most important is to definitely know where you are at, like when it comes to getting paid and paying your suppliers, optimizing cash flow to, to just make sure that you can actually afford the inventory you need um, uh, to be able to make as many sales as, uh, as possible. So for me, like the, the game change thing is really for the shop owners, I believe. Um, I think there will be some things on the end user side because they talk in the article about collection parts, but um, I would say we, we need to see um, it uh, from uh, live to, to be able to really make a judgment. Yeah, one thing to add to, to what Sophie's saying that I think you will see play out is if today, business, to your point, Sophie, I think the value really is for the, the business owner the, who's logging into their Shopify kind of admin portal to kind of run their business. But if they're, you know, kind of today stacks of bills and checks and lots of overhead um, and spending a lot of time on these maybe less valuable tasks, I think what you can see and project is that it puts the... Um, these small businesses who maybe have only one or two or three people running the business, it, it transforms and transitions them from doing these like less valuable tasks to maybe now spending more time on designing their products, working with their customers, providing the higher level of customer service and taking away sort of the overhead of running a business. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. Really, really key from from always everything we see when we speak to some of these, these small business owners I'm already like thinking that what we need to do is like have another show in a little while's time when this is rolled up where we get your mum on the show to be and we get her to kind of do like a live demo like feedback uh, experience yes. from using this product that would be super fun yeah, oh she's such a hoot too she's a she's a clothing designer so she is like the epitome of eccentric like crazy creative designer so that would be fun so she's always like if somebody else can do all this running the business crap all the better <laughs> awesome okay we'll pencil in okay I'm gonna have to move us on to our, our next story and this one comes from uh, usnews.com and that is that more banks have joined the European instant payments pilot from the end of 2020 the European Payments Initiative, a bank-backed venture that was initially set up to rival MasterCard and Visa in Europe, is to acquire Dutch payment scheme Ideal and Payconique, the mobile payments app supported by a host of Belgian and Dutch banks. EPI's ambitious aim of creating a European alternative to dominant cross-border car payment systems Visa and MasterCard was due to become operational last year, but collapsed after half of its member banks left. It refocused more narrowly on developing a digital wallet by creating a single brand for instant account-to-account payments across European countries. The wallet will be launched for the first users in a pilot phase by the end of 2023 across France and Germany, with a broader market launch that includes Belgium in early 2024. Um, 
I think this is definitely one of those really interesting stories where you read one news story and it's quite critical and then you read the press release from all of these different bank investors and it's like, it's going great, it's going wonderfully. Um, So yeah, lots of nuances to this one. Sophie, obviously uh, you're probably the best representative of of Europe on the the team today. How, How fragmented is the European payments landscape for, I suppose, our listeners in other parts of the world who, who might not know it so well? To be fair, I don't find it like super fragmented in the sense that we are so lucky to have SEPA um, that covers quite a wide range of country um, and enable us to do instant payments um, as well. So like I think SEPA is like very valuable because across country, instantly we transfer money in euro. Um, what makes the, the multitude of, uh, of different uh, or, or the fragmentation of payments is definitely the different currencies. So like GBP, SEK, PLN, like all these uh, different um, currencies and specifically the local payment schemes. So because SEPA is across countries, but um, European countries still have uh, their own uh, payment uh, schemes um, in Poland, um, in even in, well, in the UK, uh, faster payments. In the Netherlands, like, so it's ideal. That is uh, the, the subject of, uh, of this topic. And this was brings like this, uh, this fragmentation. And so people have the ability to use uh, SEPA instant payments, but in some countries, like uh, the traction of some of those local uh, uh, payment methods is much bigger. So ideal being probably like the the biggest one in um, in Europe i think there is also um in poland uh, a blink um that um, is um is very famous so yes it's still very fragmented however i feel in the sepa zone at least we don't have much uh, problems now we have uh, sepa instant so do you see this kind of wallet pilot as a as a good thing do you think it's going to create value what, what's your view on that I'm I'm curious uh, to uh, to be uh, to be honest because it's mentioned to be an attempt to go uh, against Visa and Mastercard. But if I remember correctly, and I don't remember very much how things moved, but Visa Europe was um, was uh, owned by some of those banks back in the days before it got back bought back by Visa <laughs> US. So I'm wondering to what extent it's not US like the like the European banks just trying to do parallel network. Now they are not owners of Visa Europe anymore. So um, I would I would see that. Um, do I see value in it if it's across currencies? I'm not going to lie, for sure it brings value because the hurdle of making international transfers um, is is still very strong. Um, when it comes to uh, euro, I see less value uh, in, uh, in it. And I would say wait and see because uh, Kate you probably remember correct like like me like uh, all the PayM initiative and the fact that it, it died with PayM for Usain and uh, Tree was um, a P2P network in uh, in the UK but with faster payment it, it just make less sense to to use it so I would say wait and see however the news that they have acquired ideal, is interesting because it gives a hint on the fact that they are going local and not focusing only on on more global. Yeah, no, interesting. I, 
I suppose to your point about like, you know, who owns who and is Visa owned by these banks or like, I think there's a similar kind of confusion for me when you look at these two deals as well, because both of these fintechs are owned, I think, by EPI shareholders, if I've understood correctly. So I think Currents Ideal is kind of owned by ING and some of the other Dutch banks and Pekinik is is kind of owned with Rabobank and something. So it seems like a sort of slightly odd transaction. I think the FT's reported that you know, Pekinik shareholders have the right to take back the business if EPI is unsuccessful in its rollout as well. So you know, I suppose that as with everything that's happening kind of at scale with multiple shareholders involved, like there's huge amounts of politics and complexity and and trying to find the right solutions. Um, you know, Tui Hussain, like looking at this from the outside, you know, what's what are your takes on the European payments payment system too? What do you reckon? Um, well, it's uh, it's so different than the US. So I think, you know, those of us who are in fintech, like we have, like it's funny, and I've couple, uh, a company called BlackBot that's a leader in social good um, software for um, the globe. And so I've got quite a bit of experience in the world of um, the complexity of regional and payments across the world and how different they are. So the first thing is like, it's fascinating to me how different every region and every country is. I think what's interesting about this deal and this potential opportunity is tying sort of this, this mobile sort of app experience around it. Um, and maybe taking the sort of digital kind of um, approach to how to differentiate. And so we'll see how that works. And so I think to me, the most exciting thing is, are they able to kind of really leverage? Because um, being in Europe last summer, um, we were in um, Amsterdam and out to dinner with some friends on the team and some were, you know, there, they, and they were like, oh no, it's so much easier. Let me just pay with my local, you know, um, my local payment method tied to their bank. And that's kind of the common sort of mental model is let me just do that. Let me just pull out my phone and do that. Like, oh, this is so antiquated to pull out a card or to do something else. And so potentially the whole, um, how they can take a bit of what, you know, Hussein is doing with Super and build sort of this you know, app wallet kind of solution around the the opportunity, I think is maybe where they could potentially win. One other comment, just stepping back, is like the whole world of payments is fascinating in terms of the this, this strategy around it. There was a really good article a few weeks ago um, put together in Medium. It was called The Four Chess in Card Payments. And it talks a lot about Amex, MasterCard, and Visa and the strategy around those. It's quite a good read as it relates to what's happening here with this scenario. Cool. Always, always love a good reading recommendation. Sophie, I'll just come back to, to you on this one just to round us off, I suppose. What do you think is a realistic goal for us to be having for this scheme? Like, like what do you think is a realistic target for us to be setting for it ultimately to achieve? That's a vast question, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I would think for it to be uh, a success, it would be to easily enable anyone to find anyone <laughs> they want to send money to across currencies in Europe. And I f- would see some value in that. Um, although I would argue that Revolut enables us to do that already. So that would be my, uh, my second uh, argument to that. But Indeed, like major banks are in it, we uh, we have seen. So 
potentially what could be interesting is for people that are not uh, customers of uh, of Revolut to be able to uh, to uh, join uh, this type of revolution of being able to send money across currencies instantly to um, to uh, to anyone without having to input bank uh, details because basically it's what we are trying to go around here it's just like not having to put uh, bank details and just finding people easily I believe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been kind of, obviously, we've seen phenomenal success in, in India with the rollout of their sort of unified payments interface. And I think that's been one of the huge markers of their success is that it's really helped bring so many people into the financial ecosystem who were excluded from it before. Um, so, but yeah, I think hold, obviously that's a, a huge uh, scheme and I suppose holding the European the European scheme up to that that standard maybe is is a little bit too, too aspirational. Let's anyway, let's see how they do and then fingers crossed that this this pilot is a success and, and they can continue to kind of push for broader access to, to fairer payments across across the continent. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some of the more click-worthy news stories this week. There's one story that I want to shout out this week in this section um, that comes from Finextra, and that is that Amex Venture veterans are launching a $78 million fintech fund. A group of three former Amex Ventures managing directors has secured $78 million for their debut fund, backing early-stage fintech startups and focusing on firms that can form early partnerships with financial incumbents. With nearly a decade of experience investing together, Dana Eli Lorke, Lindsay Fitzgerald and Julia Huang have backed the likes of Melio, who we've talked about already, Plaid, Stripe and Trulio and established more than 100 partnerships between startups and financial services institutions. VC Ventures says it will combine the best of their backgrounds, deep domain expertise in traditional financial services and a unique understanding of the startup ecosystem to identify, fund and scale the next generation of great companies. We've seen firsthand how the most successful fintech companies were built in partnership with incumbents. We created VC Ventures to give our portfolio companies a competitive edge early on by bridging the gap between the companies in need of new technologies and those building them. First and foremost, I'm you, I'm biased, but you know, I'm really excited to see a new fund being launched by three you know, hugely talented and experienced women. We've talked on previous shows about how the VC space needs to evolve to be less male-dominated. So to my mind, you know, this can only be a thing, uh, a good thing on, on that front. But I think also the emphasis on partnerships with incumbents is really interesting. You know, it's a space that we at 11 Fest also spend a lot of time working in. If you can make the right matches, then there are definitely massive opportunities for you know dynamic, tech-native, customer-orientated companies and incumbents with you new know, licenses, you know, maybe slightly more dormant customers and established distribution channels to form really compelling partnerships if they can kind of find that that sort of right balance. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what sort of matchmaking they they end up doing. And they've set out their focus is going to be on sort of seed to series B stages. So fintech startups showing those early signs of, of product market fit. Um, they've made five investments so far, I understand, with room for about sort of 15 to, to 20 more and aiming for those first checks to be in the sort of 1.5 mil to 3 million zone. So if you're an early stage fintech open to growing through through partnerships, then yeah, perhaps perhaps go check them out. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This one comes from Finextra, and that is that Klarna has unveiled an AI-powered personalized shopping feed. Klarna has launched a whole suite of new tools both for consumers and merchants alike, starting with the Discovery Shopping feed, powered by Klarna's in-house AI capability, giving customers real-time personalised product recommendations, becoming increasingly tailored as it learns more about the user's preferences. 
A free personal shopper service called Ask Klarna provides consumers with on-demand access to shopping experts via chat or video call in the Klarna app and on Klarna.com. And for retailers, a self-service ad management platform that uses Klarna's first-party data so retailers can reach the right shopper at the right time. Finally, Creator Shops gives creators the ability to launch their own storefronts on Klarna. Um, blimey, I've gone a little bit, a little bit AI mad. Um, you know, Hussein, obviously you guys are, are are really immersed in the shopping space. Do you think these types of features are going to be game changing for customers? Yeah, so I I read this and I have a few thoughts. First of all, of everything in here, I think what's most exciting and interesting is the discovery shopping feed and the fact that they partnered with OpenAI to do this. Um, for many, many years, people have talked about AI and like pretended that they had AI within their feed and within their recommendations. And there were very few companies who could actually do this properly and do this correctly. Now with this sort of revolution in AI and especially being powered by OpenAI, you're actually going to see that the AI is actually going to work, right? Um, and, you know, as people are using it, scrolling through it, making purchases, clicking on things, you will actually see, uh, I expect that that shopping feed gets better and better. And that's just not for Klarna. I know Klarna was one of the early partners with OpenAI, but you're going to start to see that across the board. I think, you know, generally as you go to e-commerce websites or as you go to any shopping websites, you're going to have better and better recommendations. So I think it's a great move by Klarna to jump in there early. Um, but I think you're going to see this um, across the board, across uh, businesses and e-commerce companies. Um, I mean, BNPL companies in general have had to kind of reinvent themselves. Obviously, they had a huge acceleration and now kind of hit a huge wall. Uh, and we've seen Klarna and others go deeper into shopping because of the relationships they have with merchants. So I think this is a good natural extension to what they're doing. Uh, I don't, I don't know if Klarna has ever shared any numbers in terms of how many people are opening the app and shopping directly within the app. But um, I hope for their sake that that the, those numbers are, are doing well. And I think these AI powered recommendations are going to help. Uh, on the one last piece on the free personal shopper service, uh, I'm a little bit skeptical on that. I think that uh, in order to really be able to make recommendations, you really have to know someone. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's expensive. It's hard to scale. It's hard to have someone who can really understand you and provide good recommendations. Uh, my guess is that doesn't last for too long. It may evolve eventually into a paid product where you could pay to have a personal shopping service, but I can't imagine that a free personal shopping service is going to generate the yield that they're looking for. Yeah, um, that's, that was the one as well that stood out to me. Like, as you say, like across all the rest of them, I can sort of see like the, the potential starting points of really interesting kind of value add experiences for customers if they're executed well. But when it talks about, you know, a video call with a personal shopper, like I'm just like, no one can tell me that I look fat in a dress apart from like someone that I know very, very well. So I'm just, I'm, I'm not convinced that, as you say, like that, that one's a, that one's a fly. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Tilly, what do you reckon? Um, well, just a sort of funny aside, um, that part to me, if it could be mastered is amazing as a mom of two boys and kids who, um, uh, shopping for them is just time consuming. It's not like it's hard, but if somebody could help me do that for them, that would be amazing. Um, so I actually really think that would be, um, a great capability for certain use cases. Now, I definitely agree with Hussein that actually mastering that and doing that in a way that's, um, viable economically will be interesting, but Hey, I'm great that somebody's pushing for it and trying. 
Um, yeah, in general, I think just like Hussein mentioned, I think these buy now, pay later solutions have had to kind of reinvent themselves and sort of change their business models. And uh, it is really exciting to see a use case where AI makes a lot of sense and they've kind of, you know, really made a real kind of um, push forward. I would say realistically being close to the commerce world, this is happening all over the board. They're not the only ones doing this. They're they're maybe just getting some good press around this right now, which is great and awesome. And I hope the best for us continuing to push a lot of these real use cases where um, AI can be incredibly valuable to the end consumer. Sophie, would you would you want a virtual personal shopper? I would most definitely want the Amazon experience when it comes to buying clothes because I literally buy clothes once every five years, I believe, because I dread so much going from one shop to another, even if it's online. So that's literally, like, I'm the total target of this thing. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> it's talking to me so badly. <laughs> Totally. I, I agree, Sophie. I'm like, oh, um, I know who's saying it's like it's skeptical and I'm skeptical too, based on how real it is. But I'm like, wow, that would be amazing. Not only for my kid, but maybe for me, because I don't have any time to shop. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I think it's going to be something that will work. I just think it's not going to be free for everyone. I think there's going to have to be some paid component to it. Otherwise it, it's not going to scale. Yeah. You're going to have maybe poor quality personal shoppers and it's just going to end up like not like <laughs> it's just not going to work it's, it's going to have to be a paid service you feel like you feel like inevitably you're going to get recommended something weird right like it it always it always happens that you get some i mean like what's the what's the weirdest thing that you've you've had suggested to you as like a recommended product on a on a website to me oh gosh i sort of ignore them you know and this is again i think what i like about what clarn is trying to do is like you're going there with an intention to get those recommendations and maybe kind of engage with the app. Uh, a lot of times it's a lot of noise and that noise tends to not necessarily be all that relevant. I tend to find like my algorithm gets very confused because I spend like half my time like looking at fintechs, looking at financial services. And then I spend like the rest of my time looking at quite obvious, like female stereotypical things like around like my toddler and, and side things. So like the computer seems to really struggle with this idea that you can be both like a woman and in finance. So I quite often get recommended things like you know, <laughs> pencils for accountants and things like they you know, like station, like nice stationery that just says like, I love accountancy on them and, and weird things like that. So I think, uh, I think the internet still, still struggles with that. Hussein, I don't know, you, you guys... What, what, what's the weirdest thing you've been recommended? Oh, yeah, that, that's a tough question. I can't think of anything off the top of my mind, but I do know recommendations are going to be getting better. So, um, you know, like I said, with, with AI uh, being as, as widespread as it is right now, with OpenAI powering a lot of these companies, uh, I do think recommendations in general are going to get better. So uh, we can look forward to a better world of good recommendations. Sophie, you got any, any dodgy recommendations just to close us out? I mostly and only shop on Amazon, I think. <laughs> I am so sorry, it's so bad, but I really like don't have much time to do shopping. So on Amazon, you have like very, very relevant like uh, um, proposal according to what you do. Sometimes, yes, you're looking for uh, weird things for your kids and then you have like weird recommendation coming from Asia. But um, some things that, uh, that I can remember back of my mind, no, like nothing too shocking, just like the accumulation of lots of plastic, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, um, let's see how, how Klarna do with these, this new collection of features. 
That sadly wraps up this week's news show. Um, Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you and and the projects and companies that you're working on, Hussein? Um, Yeah, thank you. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn, Hussein Fazal. You can find me on Twitter, Hussein underscore Fazal. Or you can just go to super.com and you can learn more about us. Absolutely. We definitely recommend checking it out. Sophie, what about you? Yes. uh, uh, So everybody can find me mostly on LinkedIn. It's the easiest way to do. Awesome. And Tui? Yeah, same. Um, Everyone can find me on LinkedIn, Tui Allen. I am on uh, Twitter, but less and less all the time. Um, (laughs) Tui tweets, but I'd say LinkedIn is probably the best place. Cool. Uh, And as for me, yeah, again, boringly similar, probably on LinkedIn, uh, Kate Moody or uh, Kate at LemonFest.com or Twitter at K8Moody. Uh, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at alonafest.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.